This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. And who are you? I'm Aurora Berry, and I'm the host of Planet Texas. Planet Texas. Okay. So, Aurora, what is Planet Texas? Planet Texas is a long-form podcast about climate change in Texas. And essentially what differentiates Planet Texas from a lot of other environmental podcasts is that for each episode, we enter a new community that's been impacted by climate change And we talk to the people who have lived through these climate disasters. We try to find their stories of resilience there, whether that's finding hope or rebuilding their homes, kind of look more into the strength of the human spirit when it comes to climate change. It's an awesome podcast. We're going to be bringing episode one on Generation Anthropocene here in a moment. And I'm really impressed with it. I had one thing I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with something I heard you say. So I went to a launch party. Mm -hmm for your show. And you mentioned in kind of almost an offhanded way how it used to be the case that there was this real need to convince the public that climate change is real. And I'm not sure if I heard you right or not, but it almost seemed like you were saying, I think we've overdone it a little bit. We have now kind of traumatized and terrified everybody and created this climate anxiety that so many of us are feeling, which is not bad. Like we kind of need that. But I felt like that was part of your reason for wanting to do Planet Texas in the first place. Did I hear you right? I wouldn't say that. We've overdone it. (laughs) I wouldn't say that we've overdone it in terms of emphasizing how real this is and the negative effects, um, specifically with people who, you know, have a background in science and climate communication. Um, What I'm trying to get at is the climate anxiety piece, because that's how you lead this episode. Yeah, I would say that a lot of the climate anxiety comes from this game of telephone that people play with what they we know about the climate crisis, where we have, you know, scientists saying this is real. We're going to have extreme negative impacts because of this. And honestly, I feel like this is a cliche at this point, but social media has created an environment specifically with young people that is so conducive to anxiety and doomism across all social issues, yeah. then when you're looking at climate change and you're looking at what is a fairly 
extreme existential threat. I feel like it's a very nuanced conversation to be had about how you can have something that is going to be an extreme big deal for the rest of our lives and also have a life that's worth living um, and not Mad Max style apocalypse. I feel like just a lot of the discussions that people who are on the outside of the conversation have heard about climate change are either it's not real drill, baby drill, or we're all going to die, like stop caring about anything. Yeah, no, I look, what you're speaking to is something that's a real tension of generation Anthropocene for me is that I do think that there's some distance between apocalypticism and denialism. You said something in there that's the most important thing, that there's still like a life worth living, whatever the climate reality of the future may be. I think sometimes it's hard to see that future. And I do think that something I worry about a lot is is not necessarily the overselling or overemphasis on how big a deal this is, but it's at the expense of a desirable future overall. And I feel like you can take the science seriously and still have climate anxiety and a certain level of dread, but that there is empowerment through knowledge and that there is a more complicated story to be told. Does that sound fair? Yes, it does. Okay. So people can subscribe to Planet Texas pretty much anywhere they get their podcasts? Anywhere, yeah. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Aurora Berry, congratulations. Uh, Thanks so much, and let's give it a listen. Awesome. Thanks so much. You know, it may just be me, but does anyone else feel like things have gotten a little... uh, apocalyptic lately? It seems like the state of affairs out here has been getting pretty bad pretty quickly. There's been political unrest, the plague, but the thing that's been freaking me out the most is... Fires. Hurricanes. Floods. Extreme weather. Hotter weather. Drought. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Yep, uh, it's the climate crisis. That old thing. The final karmic smackdown for mankind's lust for power and consumerism, where Mother Nature will finally punish her ungrateful children for their careless behavior. Or something like that. I may talk to a lot of scientists, but I'm not one myself. What I am is a Gen Z Texan with, um, to put it lightly, a pretty significant amount of climate anxiety. My name is Aurora Berry. I've lived in Texas for all of my life, mostly in the Austin area. I go to the University of Texas at Austin, where I study journalism and make podcasts like this one. I'm on a quest to try to figure out what our climate change future will look like, and what our present experiences with climate change mean for us as a state. Along the way, we'll answer questions that are near and dear to my heart. Is there anything we can do? Are we all going to die? Is this the end of the world? Throughout this podcast, we'll bring you stories of rapid population growth, dangerous weather events, and environmental stress. Some of the events we'll cover will have direct ties to climate change, and others are going to be examples of the problems that we'll see in the future because of it. This podcast is produced in partnership with Planet Texas 2050, an eight-year research program at UT Austin that focuses on climate change solutions in Texas. This is Planet Texas.
I think that when most people imagine Texas, it looks a lot like the panhandle. That's the very tippy top of the state where the green rolling hills of the country smooth into pastures and plains as far as the eye can see. It's mostly made up of small towns and farming communities. People drive trucks and wear cowboy hats and boots. It's got a different vibe from the major cities, and it's far away from them, too. Fields of cotton and corn blend seamlessly into the scenery through your car window. The southern drawl that seems like a distant memory in the big city still glosses over conversation. A lot of Texas agriculture takes place in the panhandle. The farmers grow mostly cotton, and if you drive through at the right time of year, you'll see fields blanketed with a downy layer of white crops and maybe a bright green tractor or two getting ready for the harvest season. Monica Ortiz grew up in the panhandle. She spent most of her childhood helping her grandfather on the farm. I would wake up really early. He always woke up super early, like probably around, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock. Um, and my, my abuelita would have breakfast for us. Um, and we would, you know, eat oatmeal and he would have a coffee. And, you know, we'd get in the truck and we would drive out to the farm. Monica grew up in Castro County, which sits right between Amarillo and Lubbock, not far from the Texas-New Mexico border. Monica now in her 40s, is a poet, but she comes from a long line of farmers. So my uh, my grandfather, my abuelito, his name is Andres uh, Montes. He came to the U.S. in, I think the first time he came here was in the 1940s. He was from Chihuahua, Mexico. He was a, also a farmer there. His entire family, they've all been farmers. When we talked about her childhood, she described the early mornings with her grandfather watching him do the painstaking labor that keeps farms across the United States producing a harvest. He always really liked um, going to work. You know, he liked to be busy. So um, as, a, as a child, like, I spent a lot of time with them, and I would just you know, um, go and spend the weekends at their house. In the wee hours of the morning, they'd drive to the farm where he worked, time distorting in a way that's unique to childhood. As a kid, you think it's a lot further, but I'm sure it was only like maybe 10 miles. And, you know, he would check the livestock, make sure that they had food, kind of like go around checking fences. One big part of their day was checking in on the irrigation systems for the crops. At that time, they had uh, pipes with uh, bags, and that was kind of how it like watered the the crops. It, they don't have the more advanced uh, irrigation systems that they do now. Dealing with irrigation is a huge job out in the panhandle. Rain is infrequent, and the hot, dry weather means that crops need as much water as they can get. Looking out across the parched landscape, it's hard to imagine what could possibly be keeping these farms in business. The source of all this agricultural abundance can be found flowing deep underground. The main source of water for their farms and the panhandle itself is something called the Ogallala Aquifer. It's the biggest aquifer in North America. This aquifer and its role in keeping Texas farms going is the focus of this first episode. Dr. Bridget Scanlon is a geologist with Planet Texas 2050, the research group we partnered with on this podcast. And she'll tell you, the Ogallala Aquifer is a pretty big deal. 
Yugalal Aquifer is uh, one of the largest aquifers in the world and it extends across about nine states uh, from uh, North Dakota, South Dakota to uh, Texas. It has been a dominant water source for irrigation um, in the region for the past uh, several decades. Or more simply put, it's the lifeblood of the Texas panhandle. And it's drying up. The Ogallala Aquifer accounts for 30% of all irrigation in the United States. According to a 2013 report, every year the aquifer supplies water for more than $35 billion worth of crops across the U.S. And since farmers have been pumping so much water from the aquifer, rainfall can't replenish it quickly enough. Since the 1950s, the aquifer has lost more than 500 cubic kilometers of water. That's roughly the volume of Lake Erie, the fourth largest lake in the U.S. There's something else happening here, too. The reason that rainfall can't replenish the aquifer quickly enough? It's something that, even if the older farmers won't name it, has been looming on the horizon for decades. This is Chris Leach. He's a farmer and a seed producer in the Texas Panhandle. It's funny. Let's let's jump back to maybe an older generation that may not think that things are changing um, in the climate. But since I was a kid, they've always told me, well, it's not raining as much. So they know something's changed, right? But understanding the science is a little different. That's the funny thing about talking about climate change in Texas. Even if folks won't call climate change by its name or think it's some sort of government conspiracy or whatever... They know the face of it. It's in their backyards, in their fields and on the beaches. It's everywhere. The Texas Panhandle is naturally hot and dry, but climate change is taking this already unstable situation and making it even worse. For example, let's take a look at one particularly bad year, 2011 when an unprecedented drought devastated Texas. We'll actually talk about that drought more than once on this podcast. Here's Dave Nayogi, a climate scientist at the University of Texas. The 2011 drought was and will continue to be one of those iconic droughts. I mean, when we look at 30s Dust Bowl and what happened in 1930s and so forth. And uh, same way we had uh, the 2011 drought. The drought was unusual because of the scale over which it occurred. It was and how long it sustained itself. And it was a billion dollar disaster. You probably remember the Dust Bowl from your high school history class. The 1930s drought and subsequent dust storms caused the displacement of countless families from farming communities. It was absolutely catastrophic. So... When Dr. Nayogi compares the 2011 drought to the Dust Bowl, that's a pretty big deal. And climate change is making droughts like the 2011 one more severe. For the farmers who rely on the aquifer, droughts like these can destroy their crops and their lives along with it. But there's still something special about the land. Something that keeps them there like the way a long-awaited rain smells when it finally meets the dry earth. I will say this, that the, the native pasture, you know, after a rain, you just can't beat. That's Chris Leach. 
the panhandle farmer and seed producer again. I live in the southern Texas panhandle or northern South Plains, and we farm here. Chris and his family have farmed in the panhandle for five generations. And they sell seeds to folks who want to start their own farms in backyard gardens. Family moved here in 1887 after moving from Kentucky, and then my mom's side of the family farms here as well, and they moved from Central Texas in 1901, so a lot of history here. He's not the only one with history up in the panhandle. I didn't necessarily like inherit a farming operation like a lot of guys do, but I always grew up around it. You know, for jobs, driving tractors for guys around here, kind of what everybody did out in the country for money. That's Travis McAllister. After going through college for economics and applied agriculture, Travis started working as a farmhand in Lubbock. He actually got into farming by accident. An older gentleman that I knew out there from where I grew up, and he uh, approached me. He was like, hey, I'm retiring, and um, I want to get help get some young guys into this. Are you interested in maybe farming this farm of mine? And it was like 150 acres. And I was like, yeah, sure, I've got the time. I don't really, you know. I didn't really have anything going on much, so that's kind of how I just kind of took it on a whim. Chris and Travis's lives are inseparable from their respective plots of land. Farming is in their blood. They stick with it through the good times. And that was in 16, and I actually had a decent crop on that place in 16, so it's like, ah, this is easy. Uh, hey, why didn't everybody do this? And the bad times. I hadn't had another good crop until this year. Monica Ortiz, who we met at the beginning of the episode, has come a long way since her days riding in her grandfather's farm truck. She has fond memories of her childhood, and she still expresses her personal connection to the land through her poetry, some of which she writes for the same program that sponsors this podcast, Planet Texas 2050. Her connection to the land is as strong as Chris and Travis's, but Monica's grown up since those days on the farm. And she wanted more than her hometown could provide. I did my undergrad at UT Austin. I did an MFA at UT El Paso. But I've lived in Austin since 2008-ish, 2009. I lived in Austin until 20. Like a lot of folks during the COVID-19 pandemic, Monica moved away from the big city to be closer to her family. After 20 years away, she finally returned to Castro County in the far reaches of the Panhandle, over 400 miles away from where she was living in Austin. And everything felt different. Maybe it's the time. I mean... I was a girl from a small town before I was a girl from Austin. I know that even a few years away can distort your memories of a place. You notice things you never had to think twice about before, but then you come back a different person and you do finally think twice about them. And it's not always a comfortable experience. Everything is really dry. Like I can tell from the you know, grass behind my parents' house, like most of it's, you know, most of it's died. Um, it's a lot of dirt now. Uh, and so just seeing little changes like that. Now that she's back in the panhandle, Monica notices the dry air, the crunch of dead grass beneath her feet, a layer of dusty haze on the horizon. 
there's a lot of cattle yards here and at in the evenings and at night sometimes like the dust from the cattle yards kind of just like covers everything and it actually creates this really thick haze so sometimes you can't even see outside the land feels drained the panhandle was never exactly lush or green but still it's not the same as the mornings that she spent with her grandfather she's not the only person who feels that way the changes in the panhandle are undeniable to anyone who knows it well The land is the same that their grandparents farmed in location alone. Travis McAllister's grandfather has made sure that his grandson knows that. So my my granddad is 88, and uh, it's funny because I'll ask him stuff, and he's like, I don't know. We both raise cotton, I raise cotton, and you're raising cotton, but what you do and what I did are two totally different animals. Chris Leach noticed it too. Great-grandpa literally farmed 160 acres, paid it off in two years after he got back from the war, and put a a kid through college, blah, blah, blah. Life was great. Kind of a leave-it-to-beaver type scenario, if you ask me. That American dream type of farming has been dead and gone for a long time. There are many reasons for that. The price of farming equipment and land have gone up. Big companies with more money and resources have moved into farming communities and can afford to take the hit of a bad growing season where smaller farmers can't. But there's something else. The land itself has grown parched and brittle. Climate change has lengthened droughts and waves of extreme heat in the region. Scientists predict that rainfall will decrease even more in the coming years. And higher temperatures mean more water is evaporating from the soil. So the soil itself is drier, regardless of how much it rains. And the heat means that plants and crops require more water to survive the summers. Water that farmers are pumping from the dwindling Ogallala Aquifer. So, we've got a higher demand for water and a supply that's running out. This mess all started after World War II. Pumping technology had finally progressed to a point where the farmers could easily access the wealth of water beneath them. They realized that they were literally sitting on top of one of the largest freshwater supplies in the United States. So, they started drilling. What could possibly go wrong? Better not to look a gift aquifer in the mouth, or however that saying is supposed to go. Here's geologist Dr. Bridget Scanlon again. They were pumping more water than was recharging the aquifer. Now I know what you're thinking. Why wasn't anyone questioning this? It seems like the farmers should have known this could become a problem, but they didn't. Maybe it was the optimism of the 1950s, or just that we didn't think about water conservation the same way we do now. Even the United States Geological Survey didn't start monitoring the aquifer until the 80s, decades after the overuse began. Their way of life suddenly had an expiration date. What's worse is that pumping nonstop from the aquifer had been working so well for so long that farmers had formed a system of agriculture that was dependent on having access to it. Irrigation is used to produce uh, crops like uh, cotton, accounts for about a third of the cotton production in the U.S. 
and um, also sorghum and uh, other uh, grain crops. Like I said before, the aquifer accounts for 30% of all irrigation in the United States. It's also used for domestic water supplies in towns in the Panhandle, like Lubbock and Amarillo. I mean, I think we need to consider the demography of the region and um, the age of the farmers and if young farmers are taking over and depending on the aquifer for their livelihood or if it's large agricultural production uh, that has moved into the state for um, uh, feedlots and uh, dairies and stuff. And that's the position that farmers like Chris and Travis are in. The world that they grew up in, the lifestyle that they were accustomed to, that just isn't possible anymore. At this point, it's adapt and survive or leave the panhandle to the big farmers who can afford to take hit after hit financially. Without knowing it, their ancestors had created a world for their grandchildren that was completely unsustainable. They got to have success and wealth. Chris, Travis, and Monica get the dust. And who can say what will be left for their children? Here's Chris again. Let's take, for instance, my grandpa. So I would say that most of his irrigation was extremely wasteful. And no offense to anybody then. It's just the fact we didn't know. We didn't know we were running out of water so fast, and we didn't have the technology to save our water. Sometimes... The amount of water that they pumped was so high that it formed puddles in ditches by the fields. It came out of the ground for free, so, hey, might as well use it, right? I remember being a kid and literally riding down a ditch on a little piece of styrofoam of just wastewater, just, you know, something that could have been used to grow a crop. Nowadays, that would be equivalent to lighting money on fire in the middle of a hot summer day. But... Back then, they didn't know any better. Even for folks in the panhandle who aren't farmers, the agricultural industry is still a major influence in their lives. Here's Monica again. These big industries that are in this in this area, you know, the the feed yards. um, There's meatpacking plants, um, processing plants, and just kind of the ways that those places, which you know employ a lot of people so it's it's a they're huge sources of employment uh, for a lot of people and i think that that makes it you know it makes it complicated um, for people around here because they're dependent upon these industries for you know for their survival even though they need these agricultural jobs to make a living they're also forced to suffer through the environmental disruptions that the industry brings with it After hearing all this, it's easy to wonder how much longer life in the panhandle will even be possible. Leaving one sick and dying home in a desperate search for greener pastures isn't a new idea. Oftentimes, it's because of agriculture and changes to the environment, just like this one. Here's Adam Rabinowitz. He's a professor in the Classics Department at UT Austin. He studies ancient civilizations' responses to weather and climate shifts. It's hard to identify ancient societies that don't think of the weather as something that is reasonably predictable, which is why agriculture in ancient societies is often very susceptible to these short-term shifts. Farming is one of the oldest professions, and one of the only ones that isn't ever going to completely disappear. 
It's tough work, but it's necessary to human survival. Passing down your secrets for taming the land you live on is one of the most practical ways that human beings have been able to preserve their legacies and express love to the generations that come long after they're gone. But that's exactly part of the problem for farmers who rely on the Ogallala Aquifer. The old ways of farming don't really work in a changing environment. Especially when you're growing staple crops. You are growing it on the basis of what your dad said about what the weather does and what his dad said about what the weather does and what his dad said about what the weather does. And if you're in a new world where the weather is not doing what it's supposed to do, it's very hard to adjust to that. Change is a very lonely thing sometimes. Very scary, too. Especially when your life depends on it. You're left with all of these questions and nobody to answer them. Even if the people you love are still around, they can't solve your problems anymore. And they can't tell you what the future holds. When we look at responses in the natural world, which humans belong to, to changing climates, dramatic or minor, long-term or short-term in the past, those responses, the successful responses, often involve a degree of mobility. So it's not that you stay in the place that now has no rain and figure out an extremely clever technological system to gather every drop of sweat and put it in a cistern. It's that you say, okay, well, this isn't going to work for us given the way of life we want to preserve. We can make some changes to our way of life, but eventually we just can't live here. And we have to go somewhere else. Where's the line between hope for adaptation and drinking your own sweat? It's harder to see than you'd think. Climate change has brought drought to an already hot and dry Texas. Adding the depletion of the Ogallala Aquifer and the increased demand for water has taken that crisis and made it worse. That's not even considering factors beyond the environment that might push people out, such as a lack of jobs and the rising cost of living. So... It's no surprise that many people are leaving the panhandle and taking their chances in urban areas. There's a big turn right now of guys retiring and not any younger guys kind of coming in. And so what I've noticed in the last few years is there have been a lot of those kind of medium to small range farmers have become big farmers and big guys have gotten huge. And there was really there isn't a lot of young people coming into it. Chris Leach is seeing it too. There are people who have left um, ag, and there's only a handful of young producers left in, in our county. Uh, as opposed to, let's say, when my dad came back from college, um, there was quite a big group. Well, now there's only, you know, a handful of us at that same age and time in life. So uh, part of that's the economy of farming, and part of that's our water situation. The constant disappointment of losing crops and of watching the land dry up around you can become unbearable. And the emotional turmoil of farming can take a huge toll on farmers. I would say that it has a pretty big mental health aspect for a lot of the growers in the Ogallala. Um, in 11, during the drought, uh, there was a gentleman up the road from us that had committed suicide from it. He just could not stand the financial burden from it. There it is. 2011 drought again. There are real consequences. Real human lives and families are tied up in the changes that we're seeing to our environment 
and in the ways that we as a society choose to accommodate those suffering from these changes. You might think at this point that the panhandle is doomed, that we're all doomed. Yet, the people who know this place best, flaws and all, are choosing to stay. They stay for their families, they stay for the land, they stay because they must. Even if the specifics of our ancestors' lives don't always match up with ours, I think that there's one lesson that is going to ring true no matter what. Sometimes survival means change, and all the mess that comes along with it. It's not the easiest thing, but it's the thing that works. Despite the challenges, the farmers in the panhandle keep on fighting. Travis and farmers like him took up new technologies to conserve water where their grandfathers didn't. They moved away from watering practices of the past. There's pivot irrigation, the big sprinkler things that you see spraying over farmland. Then there's row watering, or furrow watering technically, which is basically where you fill little trenches between the crops with water. These methods waste more water, so many farmers have moved on to drip irrigation, which waters the plants through tubes close to the ground to avoid evaporation. Many of them say that it's one of the most efficient ways to save water. I've got probably 200 acres of drip now, and then um, a lot of my places still have pivots on them, but we can't water the whole 120 acres under the pivot. And so because there's just not enough water to do that. So what I do is I just water, say like a half circle. So I'm watering 60 acres and then putting like a hay crop or integrating some cows, you know, with some grazing, some things like that on the other side and then rotating those halves back and forth every year. He wanted to move completely to more efficient forms of irrigation, but installing all that new equipment was more than he could afford. You know, try to save some money where you can. It's kind of the trick to the whole thing. Where can you pinch a penny? Outside of that, he tries to conserve water by planting cover crops. Cover crops are plants that you place in your fields not for harvesting, but to hold down the loose dirt that would otherwise be kicked up by the wind. It's a practice that dates back to the Dust Bowl. By preventing soil erosion, you increase the likelihood that the water that falls there will stay there. It's a totally different system now. I mean, we we try to run those tractors as little as we can. We're using cover crops to try to help conserve some of that rainfall. Tactics like these that are mostly focused on maintaining the health of the ecosystem farmers already have, have gotten more popular in recent years. Chris Leach has found his place as a farmer in the world of regenerative agriculture, which focuses on just that. What it means is we're trying to, like the name states, regenerate kind of the ecology of, of wherever you're producing as a whole. And it really focuses on uh, soils and sustaining your soils, uh, putting life back into your soil, whether it be carbon sequestration or really looking at the profiling of the biology of the flora and fauna in your soil and how that is going to carry your legacy and your farm and, and everyone's food supply for the world further, further into the future. Chris models his entire agricultural ethos on protecting the environment for the people who will farm the land after him. The accidentally unsustainable practices of the people who came before him created the problems that he faces when farming today. 
from water scarcity to unstable layers of topsoil. He doesn't want his children to be forced to deal with these issues or any new ones. It's not hard to see um, the terrible dust storms that we have up here or in West Texas or further up in the panhandle. And so regenerative ag kind of focuses on how to deal with what we've we've created a mess in the last hundred years. But you don't have to be a farmer to make an impact. Monica is using her skills as a poet to explore the ways that we connect to our world through water. Like I mentioned earlier, she's actually working with the same research group as me, Planet Texas 2050. They have this artist-in-residency program, and Monica's a part of it, and so is this podcast. I'm particularly focused on um, hydropolitics, which is um, about water and um, water usage in Texas. Um, Hydropolitics are essentially like the politics affected by the availability of water and resources. Working on the project has made Monica re-examine her own relationship with the Ogallala Aquifer and her relationship with water in general. What is our our life going to look like? Um, The more and more restricted um, water becomes to us. One of the beautiful things about art in uncertain times is that it can help you process the confusing present and conceptualize an unknowable future. Anxiety and all. It's also about finding footholds for hope. I think it can all be a lot, a pretty overwhelming. And um, I just try to, you know, I, I try to do the best I can, and, um, but I, I do have hope in what I've seen from, like, uh, younger people. Um, you know, obviously Gen Z is, um, I think, doing a lot of advocation, of advocacy in, you know, in climate justice. Um, and I think that there's a lot of hope in that, that, you know, they want a different world. Despite all the difficulties they've faced, Travis, Chris, and Monica all have hope for the future. At least, enough hope to stick around and keep fighting. Chris thinks that the agricultural community over the Ogallala will last, even if the water dries up. Again, survival is tied up in the ability to change. Chris thinks that there might be a hybrid solution. A middle ground that incorporates both the wisdom of his ancestors, plus a little help from modern science. I think it's going to go back to how it was when my great-great-great-grandparents were here, where it's more animal-based, it's more rotational-based. Obviously, crop hybrids and breeding have got us to a point where we're growing things I didn't think we would still be able to grow here. I mean, science has come a long way with us, but... I'm not too worried. I mean, there's always there's always opportunities in ag if you're willing to look for them. But as a whole, uh, it's just going to look very different than, than what we're used to seeing for the last two generations. Travis also sees hope and change in the Panhandle's future. You know, a lot of times we're in survival mode, and so or in the, in this area, so. Um, you know, hopefully that they, they will be looking at different ways where they can still be doing this in, you know, 20, 30 years. You know, 
something to pass on to their kids, things like that. I also see hope for the future in the Panhandle's agricultural community, and not just because I think that the resilient people who live there will fight to keep their communities alive. For me, it says something about the nature of human beings. When we look at climate change and the changes that are going to occur because of it, I think we mostly focus on the bad things. Everything that we're going to have to give up and the things that we're going to lose. Don't get me wrong, we are going to lose things and it's going to be hard. Really, really hard. But then I look at places like the Texas Panhandle that have been forced to change and managed to survive. And I feel hope. I see a lot of surface parallels between the Panhandle's reliance on overusing the Ogallala Aquifer and humanity's reliance on overusing fossil fuels. It's not a one-to-one comparison, of course. Overusing water and overusing oil or natural gas have completely different effects on the environment. And this part is super important. There are completely different levels of money and political interest tied up in the oil industry versus the Ogallala. What I'm saying is that this community built their entire livelihoods around this resource that can't be used in the same way anymore. And their ingenuity and an acceptance of change have adapted and persevered. So far, anyway. When we talk about moving away from our heavy usage of fossil fuels, I think that a lot of folks are afraid of that change. They think that we won't be able to handle it because we've built so much of our current lifestyles around powering our world with these energy sources. I totally get that fear. Change is scary and not very pleasant most of the time, but it is possible. Changes in the panhandle have been hard, but they've worked because smart, dedicated people have made it work. I think it's silly to see communities that do this on a smaller scale and then be completely convinced that we as a species don't have enough of these smart and dedicated people to reimagine the world to be more sustainable. I have hope in change. Because I have hope in people. Anyway, I'll leave you with Monica and her poetry about the place she calls home. Changes and all. The first poem I'm going to read is called Supper Time. On the Great Plains, just south of wildfires, blue surgical masks thrive in the fields. The wind coughs. We count years down till the aquifer depletes. We stop tracking variants. The surprise, late summer rain, flushes grass. Texas is hosted, produced, reported, and edited by me, Aurora Berry. The executive producers are Katie Penchik-Outka and Robert Quigley. 
This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Moody College of Communication. This podcast was produced in partnership with Planet Texas 2050, an eight-year research sprint aimed at pursuing climate change solutions in Texas. My reporting partner on this podcast is Will Brooks. The associate producers are Jimena de la Mora, Anna Goodwin, Jackie Ibarra, Lori Martinez, Mia Munoz, Cesar Perez, and Tamara Rodriguez. The script editors are Claire McInerney and Emily Rubin. The artwork was created by Alexa Georgilos. Sophia Vargas-Karam is the drag's marketing and communications manager, and Grace Robertson is the drag's PR manager. Christian McDonald is our technical director. Special thanks to John Schwartz, Heidi Schlombach, Dave Kramer, Jonathan Lowell, and Jenny Nelson-Gray. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. We also want to thank Jay Bernhardt, David Reif, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, and Jay Whitman of the Moody College of Communication. And special thanks to Robert Vilwalk and Ann Sellers. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com slash donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Aurora Berry for that story. Again, you can listen to the entire Planet Texas podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks also to Brandon Burke for production assistance with this. And thank you for listening. I'm Michael Osborne. See you next time.